everyone. Good to see you. So I haven't uploaded an episode in a while and you might be like, hey, where's Classroom Psychology? Uh, well, Classroom Psychology has been going live for a little bit now. Uh, we've been going on tour around the country and uh, and running live sessions. We've been running live, live Classroom Psychology episodes, doing what we do every time, taking a question from a public figure or a politician and taking it for the question we know it was intended to be, even though it might be created in the form of somewhat confident declaration. And it's been great. I've been having a great time. And I got consent from one of our uh, like people we were presenting to, one of the groups, very kindly allowed me to record this live episode for wider consumption. So here at the Glasgow LGBTQ uh, Plus Network uh, at the University of Glasgow, uh, they very kindly allowed me to record this session. So here, uh, for the first time, is Classroom Psychology Live. Hey, you know, if you're ever interested in you know, getting in touch and trying to get Classroom Psychology Live into your local context, hey, don't hesitate to come find me on Twitter. Send me a DM at Classroom Psych. Or come find me at the University of Southampton. Send me an email, whatever you'd like. You know, get in touch uh, and we'll see what we can do. Because, uh, hey, it's been a wild ride running around talking to people about gender. Yeah, it's one of the things I love to do the most. But, hey, we're going to try and do more of these where we make them accessible to you. And for sure, we're going to be still doing our regularly scheduled episodes for sure. I have a great question posed by Sajid Javid, which I am right in the middle of trying to research an answer for. It's a bit of a corker and pretty tricky to find a good answer. But for sure, we're going to take a look at the literature and see if we can't find one. But for now, here at the University of Glasgow, this is Classroom Psychology Live. Reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello everybody and welcome to Classroom Psychology Live. Uh, I'm your host, Cora. Thanks so very much for joining me. Uh, it's so wonderful to see you. Uh, you know, I'm glad you're all in here, up on in, as we always do. Uh, and let's see if we can't like understand a little bit more about gender diversity. And, you know, as we come together to today so awesomely, uh, it's wonderful you're all kind of hopping on in. It's wonderful to see people interested in this topic apart from anything else. Uh, it's, you know, uh, it's been a long road. Uh, hey, you know, I... I uh, um, wow, my backlights came on. Perfect timing. Uh, yeah, I'm Cora. I'm an educational psychologist. Listen, and I, I've been doing this for a bit. I am a transgender woman uh, and I have multiple sclerosis and we talk about this kind of stuff. But I transitioned when I was on the course on the educational psychology doctorate after year one, like after year one, before year two. That's when I started my transition journey. And I was starting to look at the literature back 10, 12 years ago. And in the 10 years that followed, I genuinely thought, right, I genuinely thought that we were going to see this beautiful kind of wave of acceptance. I was cresting this amazing wave of acceptance. And I was just like, braver people than me had come before me and were going to be like, they were, they had done amazing things and kind of blazing a trail that I would follow. And I would just kind of, you know, breeze in and you know, be really, have a great time. 
And then, you know, we'd just be cresting this wave of acceptance. And it, it didn't really happen. This big change happened, right? Uh, in, in public policy and public perception, gradually, it was a big change, but it happened very gradually over 10, 12 years as we watch as, you know, successive uh, prime ministers continued to amp up their rhetoric particularly in the last three or four years. Oh my goodness. And and not only that, but we see this kind of erosion of medical services for the transgender community and no services created for other gender diverse communities as though the transgender community is the only gender diverse community out there in need of like transition support services. Uh, we know there's loads and no services were created for those folk, even though we knew they existed 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and we knew that there were going to be lots of trans people coming forward. Because even 10, 12 years ago, we could see the literature was saying there's a great deal, like a good half percent of the population were trans adults. And most of them were identifying that they knew something was different. They knew they could understand their gender identity around the age of seven. We know now it's a bit younger for young trans people. It can be much younger. It can be much younger. And it ranges quite heavily. But for a lot of trans folk, it was in childhood. So we were sitting there thinking, well, the literature is clearly saying that there's going to be more trans children and young people coming forward, a lot more potentially. And clearly they're going to invest in these services. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, and worse, We've grown a situation where access to these services has become increasingly difficult to a point now where it's almost impossible. You know, forgive me for a second. We're going to talk about uh, Alice Lippman, who very recently, very sadly, took her own life. Uh, a transgender woman who had been on the waiting list for support services for over a thousand days. And at the inquest, uh, they they mentioned that you know if a trans adult was referred into those services today it could be 20 years before they'd get seen of course in reality we hope there's going to be more investment in those services momentarily but in the meantime you know we really do have a crisis you know a crisis uh that that we should have avoided we knew the evidence to avoid uh, and we failed to do so uh, and so now we have a really significantly challenging situation. And part of that is this kind of rhetoric that we've been seeing. Public figures, often uh, like politicians, sometimes famous book authors, uh, you know, making these very bold declarative statements as if they had a good sense of the evidence and often in quite misinformed ways. And often they, they speak with like an unearned confidence about what they think might be going on. And with a kind of view, I think, uh, certainly the effect of sort of having this degrading effect on public perception towards gender diverse communities. And so we saw this happen uh, and we've been contributing to the literature and these public figures talking in bold terms as they often do and saying things like, but we don't have the evidence. We don't have the evidence, we don't have the research yet to know, oh, if only we did. And we were there, you know, as people who conduct research in this field. You know, we, we're part of the, we run the EP Gender Research Group, uh, doctoral students all trying to conduct their research, their thesis research in the topic of gender diversity. So we contribute to the literature 
And there's a huge community of, of scientists, amazing folk. Um, some of my favorites, like Celine Gilgoes, one of my all-time uh, favorite researchers. Christina Olsen, absolutely brilliant in the States. Um, just, I mean, there are countless. Uh, I'm not going to name them all, but I mean, I couldn't if I tried. Uh, but it's a beautiful and large community of researchers all coming together to kind of extend the discipline. And yet public figures are kind of making these bold statements. And so we decided, well, let's take these statements for the questions we think they're intended to be, at least we aspire for them to be intended to be, and let's answer them. Let's take a look at the literature to see if we can't find an answer. So here we go. As we come together, as we do every time, we take the questions posed by public figures, often in the form of confident declaration, and we try to answer them. Today, We've got a corker. I can't believe how lucky we are that only a few weeks ago we had the Tory party conference and the legendary Prime Minister Rishi Sunak stood up and he made some confident declarations about the transgender community. Uh, and so uh, let's see. Let's, let's hear him now. Uh, the legendary Rishi Sunak. Oh, you might not be able to hear anything. That might be me. Uh, let me fix that for you. Actually, you might not be able to see anything. What am I doing? I will fix the problem. More. Share sound. Yeah, I knew, I, I was sitting with myself. Yes, we were talking about this this morning, right? I've been doing Zoom for three or four years. I know to click the sound button and I didn't. Uh, so here we go. So at the Tory party conference, right? Keynote speaker, Rishi Sunak. And it also shouldn't be controversial for parents to know what their children are being taught in school about relationships. Patients should know when hospitals are talking about men or women. And we shouldn't get bullied. <laughs> and we shouldn't get bullied into believing that people can be any sex they want to be. They can't. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's just common sense. to the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for such an interesting question posed as they often are in the form of such confident declaration. Uh, you know, hey, uh, that was a corker. Uh, of all the ones that we have tackled, that one's maybe my favourite. Uh, pretty tricky to be generous with those words. But actually, if we take a look at the question that it represents, this question of, is it possible? Like, is it, is it that can people not change what he describes as sex? Is it possible that, like, does is the trans community a real thing or is it a modern trend? Is it changed over time? Are transgender folk now suddenly coming forward in great numbers because of some kind of social contagion? Uh, or is it possible that people have always been able to change gender? Um, let's, let's talk about language very briefly because... You know, when the Prime Minister says, oh, people can't change sex, obviously he can hide a little bit behind that and say, well, people can change gender, but they can't change sex. Very complicated uh, use of language to try and defend a difficult-to-defend position. But let's talk about the distinction between biological configuration and gender identity and gender expression, just so that we have a language that we can use to answer his question. So, biological configuration... 
We use that term because it's kind of how a body is configured in relation to gendered anatomy. So how your primary and secondary sexual characteristics look uh, and your chromosomes all form in, uh, form a unique tapestry of biological configuration, how your body is configured. Now, we have some control over that. Not a lot, but we do have some. That's kind of what transition-related services are designed to do, is to help people's body to conform better to how they identify on the inside. Now, of course, a gender identity, a bit difficult to define. The literature has a great uh, fun time of finding it extremely difficult to define gender identity. But Mindville came up with this beautiful definition in 2012. Pretty sure it was Mindville. hope I'm not misattributing this. They said... The only thing that's consistent within any given gender identity, such as man or woman, perhaps amongst others, is a deep-seated sense of identification with the concept. The term rings true. It holds meaning. Something inside of us says, yes, that's right. That feels like home. That's what I am. That feels like home. That's what I am. It's a implicit, deep sense of oneself. If I was to ask you what gender you are, unlike doctors at as somebody's birth, it's not as if you'd have to look down, right? But we do that. We assign gender on the basis of that biological configuration, right? It's often the first word that a child hears. The first words are, congratulations, it's a boy, or congratulations, it's a girl. So fundamental to our society is that assignment. We do it as one of the first things that we do with children. And, you know, even sometimes before they're born. And yet... There are people, many people, you know, if we talk about the gender and gender diverse communities, it's easily a good few percent of the population. But we're talking about the trans population discreetly, it's more like half a percent. That's not nothing, right? It's quite a few people out there whose gender identity is at odds with their biological configuration in some way, right? That causes a dissonance that can be jarring and unhappy. And I don't want to... Uh, way too heavily on gender dysphoria, which is what we call the sort of emotional consequences of that dissonance, too heavily, because there is a beautiful set of literature that's just emerging now about trans joy and gender euphoria, which is the other side of that coin. When somebody looks at themselves in the mirror and they see that sort of line up between their gender expression, their gender identity, and their biological configuration, and the more that lines up, the lighter they feel. And it's sort of an almost electric sensation, one of these uh, researchers highlight. This kind of, this weight that is lifted that you only know is there because suddenly it is gone. As you see yourself in the mirror and things line up for the first time, it's a euphoric, wonderful experience that we're just now starting to understand more and more in the literature. It's a beautiful thing. So I do want to kind of say that, you know, trans liberation, gender diverse liberation, and all of our liberation to some extent, right? Because, you know, this model of gender that Rishi Sunak talks about kind of restricts us all to some degree. When we're talking about liberation, it's about freedom and it's about self-determination and about euphoria and joy. It's a beautiful thing. So Rishi Sunak then... The model of gender that Rishi Sunak is advertising here is that, ah, it, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's just common sense. 
And this model of gender is one that sort of pervades society quite heavily. This idea that men and women are distinct from one another, and there's a set of characteristics that define one as distinct from the other. But actually, when we get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it might not be as clear as that. If we were to talk about, like, for example, i tell you a story that I absolutely love. When I uh, transitioned, I had, you know, I do, for want of a better sort of experience, I anonymity, particularly early in my transition, but even now, anonymity remains my first line of defense. And I lean upon the unearned privilege of passing that I know isn't afforded to everyone and that I maybe shouldn't lean on as much as I do, but it remains my first line of defense is to try and hide in plain sight. But when I first transitioned, what that meant was that people, you know, who historically, like when I met people in my profession, people saw me as a man in the world. And then suddenly people saw me as a woman in the world. And I suddenly got a sense of the the different ways in which we relate to each other fundamentally on the basis of how we see each other. And I was in this meeting. I'd always thought of myself as pretty confident, probably unearned confidence, really, maybe even arrogant. As I thought of myself, I knew what I was talking about and I had important things to say because my experience had been that people would listen to me whenever I spoke. <laughs> and if, if people are listening, then I must have something important to say. And I would walk into rooms like, I've got this. I know what I'm talking about. And I was in this meeting, full girl mode, one of the first, not one of the first times, but like professionally, you know, one of the first times. And I remember in the consultation, this very kindly gentleman, a teacher across the table from me, we were having a conversation, a bunch of teachers in the room, we're all talking and uh, we were trying to solve problems. It's what educational psychology does. And I was in the middle of the information carrying words of my interpretation, right? I was making an interpretation. I thought it was badass. I thought I knew what I was talking about. I was like, I've got this. This one's a corker. And I started talking. And right in the middle of my sentence, the gentleman across the, the table from me just started speaking. Just, you know, just started talking in the middle of what I was saying. And I just, oh, you know, I just, I, it was like walking upstairs and missing a step at the top. I was like, whoa. I didn't, I suddenly didn't know what to do. And there was a bit of me that was like, I suddenly realized a couple of things. The first thing I realized is that it wasn't counter-normative for him to have done what he just did, right? Wasn't counter-normative at all. And second, it would be super counter-normative of me to do the same thing suddenly. Because I kind of wanted to be like, hey, shut up. Like, <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And this guy you know, suddenly I realized in the space how counter-normative it would be for me to do that and how I would be seen immediately as what, like, bossy? Difficult? And I was like, wow, you know, the policing that goes on around the edges that we don't really even think about, about what the expectations of women and of men are, their competence, their ability, how independent they should be, whether they should be, like, what they should be interested in, what they should be doing and capable of is really different. And it's radical. I've, I've spoken to parents who, you know, uh, where the dad in parents' evening suddenly finds that he's the one who's not really listened to or talked over because people assume that mum is the, you know, the primary caregiver of the child. So, you know, 
I think we all, all of us together, get a little bit marginalized by this model of gender, which says that there are two genders in the world and which gender you are can be accurately determined at birth and will be wholly, universally you. Congratulations, it's a boy or congratulations, it's a girl. And we make that assignment fundamentally by looking down. And then we basically have a set of associated characteristics and expectations and what you should be capable of and ways of relating to one another built out of this basic assignment. And of course, the problem there is that, you know, is that a reasonable way to think about gender, right? The problem is that there might be folk for whom that assignment is wrong. Now, we've got to bear in mind that this assignment, this way of thinking about gender, also has one other component that Rishi Sunak isn't really alluding to, but it's in there. Between the lines, it's in there. Because it was also in a not dissimilar speech by Margaret Thatcher in 1987. A not dissimilar and quite famous speech where she said that all children are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay and that they are being denied a sound start in life. Not dissimilar to Rishi Sunak talking about transgender people just don't really exist. So what does this model of gender kind of represent? How are these two things related? Well, they're related by an idea of social cognitive view of gender, basically. Kohlberg was a key theorist here. Now, we started with a view of gender that it was kind of reinforced, right? Behaviorism back in the 30s and 40s, we had this view of uh, applied to gender and of behavior more broadly that people learned how to do things by reinforcement and punishment, right? They got good responses from what they were doing and then they continued to do more of those things. And then we evolved to see, well, actually thought is a part of that process, right? We think about what we're doing and that cognition then like our understanding of things like social norms pocket into little pockets of knowledge that we then can assign and apply to ourselves. And that kind of concept, that sort of gender schema theory got applied to gender. Schema theory got applied to gender in gender schema theory, which basically said that children learn how to do gender from models around them. There's a view of gender that the models in our environment teach us how to do gender by populating the femininity or woman or girl schema as opposed to the, and separate from, you know, the masculinity boy man schema. And how do we know which applies to us, which set of social norms we should follow? Well, somebody tells us. The view of gender schema theory is that you know, children need good models and they need to be taught which gender they are, because that's how they learn to behave in accordance with that gender schema. And then they learn the social rules and norms of gender and they develop and they grow up, in inverted commas, normally. And of course, the problem with that is it kind of loops in with the concept of, you know, heterosexuality and uh, cisgenderism as like normal and healthy and correct. And then it loops into the question of, you can also therefore raise a child straight or cisgender and you can also raise a child gay or bi or uh, transgender or other forms of gender diversity by virtue of us not doing a good job of parenting. 
So this concept of gender schema theory is what then informed section 28, where Margaret Thatcher says, we can't teach children that they have an inalienable right to be gay because we're advocating for forms of sexuality, forms of gender that are counter-normative, that are unhealthy, in inverted commas, undesirable. Deeply, deeply problematic and a bit sad in a way to see that kind of same idea sort of reinforced in modern like people talking about gender diversity. We even had you know, a very famous book author recently talk about how she thinks this is the greatest medical scandal of our time, gender transition related services for children and young people, because her view is that children and young people don't know what they are, but they could be molded. Their gender identity could be molded that transition might shape their gender identity. But if we look at some of the awesome work uh, that's been going on from people like Christine Olsen, Celine Gilgoz, uh, I know I've mentioned them before, they're just my all-time favorites. Listen, if I ever saw Celine Gilgoz in real life, I think I'd pass out and somebody's going to have to save me. I just fangirl out hard. But they've been looking at, like, does transition shape somebody's gender identity? They've done a couple of really big studies on this to work out, does do for transgender children, right? For actually transgender children, those children who identify strongly as a girl, for example, as female, and who were assigned male at birth, we'll take them as, a, as an example, right? They ask the question, do those young people who transition early do they differ from those who transition later? I.e., does the act of transition make them more feminine? Or are they more feminine and therefore transition? Right? Comparing people who transition a little earlier to those who transition later and comparing transgender folk from their cisgender counterparts, including their siblings. So taking into account the environment, right? And they found that Transition does not shape gender identity. They were just talking about social transition here, right? Which is just the act of changing our gender expression. Gender expression is like a social performance of our gender to ourselves and to the world. And for children, most of the time, social transition is the only form of transition to which they have access. Until they start puberty or until they're on their way to puberty, other forms of transition like puberty blockers aren't really needed. Bodies don't really differentiate that much when we're talking about young children. So these kids are only socially transitioning, but the act of social transition doesn't shape somebody's gender identity, it seems. Somebody's stronger cross-gender experience, that kind of stronger, that's right, that feels like home, that's what I am, informs the need to transition. Which is super interesting, right? That directly contradicts gender schema theory. And it starts to hearken to something more essentialist about gender identity. But these kind of views of gender that Rishi Sunak is highlighting sort of says, listen, your gender essentialism is about like biological configuration, that your primary sexual characteristics determine everything else about your gender. But what we find here is that gender identity seems that it is born and not made, but isn't necessarily determined by the same thing that determine our physical characteristics. There can be, and not unfrequently is, a bit of dissonance between those two things. And so transition-related services for these kids 
this completely reasonable approach. So we have Rishi Sunak then saying there's only two genders, essentially, man and woman, and you can't really change which. And that's sort of not only does that hark to this sort of gender schema theory and this view of kind of this binary view of gender, but it also implies a sort of universal truth about the binary view of gender. We often sometimes see that, right? This view that, you know, the gender binary is a fundamental biological reality, a fundamental truth, and that these kind of newfangled genders have come across very recently as a sort of, you know, something that's causing a big confusion in a lot of children and young people, in inverted commas, heavily inverted commas. This view is not uncommon. But what's interesting is that if we were to take a look at the cross-cultural research, we take a look across history, we find that there are actually countless cultures around the world throughout history that have got genders that are outside of the binary, often engaged in like in public life and in that they're accepted in mainstream society. And we find that, you know, from the Kinner of India to the Fafafine and the Fakaleti uh, of the Pacific Islands to, um, to the two-spirit cult, uh, cultural experiences in Native America to the warrior women in Africa to like countless others around the world, completely separate from each other, these cultures have accepted a form of gender outside of the gender binary. And so what this tells us is that maybe these experiences are kind of united by a fundamental truth about gender, that male and female just isn't big enough to describe everyone's experience. Gender is just a touch more diverse than that. I wanted to kind of introduce you to a couple of really cool pieces of research focused on that topic, because... I've been really enjoying, they've only recently come out, like this one from Ramirez and Munar, last year, Hybrid Gender Colonization, The Case of the Mouche. Now, in uh, Juchitan in Mexico, uh, there's a little place, I mean, in Mexico more broadly, I think there was a, a like the Mouche uh, historically was a sort of culturally welcomed and accepted part of, of indigenous culture. But there is a space called the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, um, which is the in the sort of smallest space between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean. Uh, there's a little kind of uh, like the narrowest part of Mexico. There's a, a community there of folk who have managed to resist the effects of colonialism and who continue like long held traditions of the culture. And in that space... The Mouche continue to exist today. And here's where it gets really interesting, right? If we go around the world, we can find that a lot of cultures have like engaged in the pathologization, the kind of um, the criminalization in law and the sort of the social oppression of gender minority communities. And we find often that's a consequence of, if not a legacy of, colonialism, colonialist rule around the world. I mean, we've talked about a couple there already. Uh, you know, we're talking about Native America. We're talking about African communities. We're talking about, uh, like, India. These are all kind of, they're British colonies. And it was British colonialism that imported this kind of 
like this binary view of gender as normal, as healthy, and that criminalized these other experiences. Now, what's really interesting is that because we can talk to the Mouche in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, we can actually ask people about their experience in a society that has managed to resist the effects of colonialism. And when we ask them about their experience, we can find that actually there are some really interesting parallels between their experience and like gender diverse communities in the West, where we have stronger kind of um, like there's a much greater amount of research on like Western, uh, particularly weird, you know, white educated democratic societies and wealthy societies, too. So we have sort of stronger research on those communities. But we can, when we look at the Mouche and ask them about their experience, we can hear the parallels. Here's a few wonderful quotes from young people, uh, Mouche in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Since I was young, I leaned towards feminine. I was bullied at school and in many conflicts. Now I work for public institutions and fight for transparency and inclusion. It's fine when they call me Mouche. What makes me sad and angry, forgive my use of language here, a direct quotation, is when they call me maricon, puto, yoto. These names are denigrative way to refer to Mouche as perverts, and this I won't tolerate. What an amazing parallel between what we hear in, like, modern Britain uh, and we hear in modern Tehuantepec, this kind of like a view of gender diversity as somehow kind of akin to a perversion almost. Our community formed more than 20 years ago in an association with the extraordinary name Las Auténticas de e Intrépidas Buscadores del Peligro, the authentic and intrepid seekers of danger. Since the Mouche community is respected and appreciated in our city, many politicians appear to use Mouche's names in their election campaigns, and some politicians try to hijack the Mouche identity. Gender equality became a buzzword, and some politicians wanted to take away our name, authentic and intrepid. But thanks to Diosito, God, we have just legally registered our organization as a civil association to protect our identities. This is fascinating to me how beautifully kind of you know, in a in a sort of in a society that resisted the effects of colonialism how welcome like there's still an experience of prejudice clearly but how welcome in society gender diverse individuals find themselves to the extent that the mouche are kind of like their their experiences recruited in political campaigns to try and kind of uh, present as more authentic and intrepid because that's how the community is seen. Absolutely brilliant. Pride is a means for Mouche to maintain their indigenous aesthetics, such as their Tehuan, uh, Tehuana dresses, the traditional dresses comprising a velvet top embroidered with bright flowers and a long cotton skirt that extends to the feet that are worn daily by women and by Mouches in the Isthmus. Absolutely brilliant. Now, here's really cool quote, a really cool quote. LGBTQI is a Western term. We don't agree with this Western way of defining us. Mouche is not a new phenomenon. We've been living this way for centuries. Mouche reflects our role in society, which is not equivalent to LGBTQIA+. So there are beautiful parallels, but in a sense, you know, while 
in the UK, maybe in the West generally, we have this view of ourselves as uniquely progressive. Actually, here we find that our colonial heritage leaves us regressive. And actually, when Rishi Sunak says, you know, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, that's simply, you know, common sense. It's common colonial sense, right? We advocated that view of gender as normal, as typical, as healthy around the world. And when societies manage to resist it, actually gender diversity can find its way into mainstream society much more easily. Now, to compare, we have Rao and colleagues uh, from 2020, you are illegal in your own country. The perceived impacts of anti-sodomy legislation among Indian sexual and gender minorities. It was only struck down in the Supreme Court of India in September 2018. Section 377 penalized same-sex sexual activity in India, which disproportionately targeted men who had sex with men and transgender women, who were considered men under this law, clearly. Now, in a and in a society, this is a colonial era law, right? Section 377 is a colonial era law. So if we were to ask these folk about their experiences, take a look at the quote and see how different it is. I'm scared to admit my sexuality in the environments that I live or work in. Bearing in mind in India, this is post, uh, like post Supreme Court striking down of this law, but the post-colonial experiences, like we have had a legacy on public opinion. I have to constantly lie when questions about my marriage come up. And I'm, I'm unable to bring my partner for trips taken with colleagues and their straight spouses. How? I find that amazing, right? Of the participants they had in their study, they had like just under 200 uh, gender diverse folk in their study. They found that while all of them uh, identified as a sexual minority and some as a gender minority, they found that these folk had been oppressed in a society that, you know, as a consequence of colonialism, found that, you know, gender diverse communities were less welcome in mainstream society. So we find that, you know, I think Rishi Sunak is wrong on a number of different fronts here, right? Not only is this idea that, you know, man and woman is a uh, simply a truth of existence. Not only is that like hark back to a problematic view of gender as deterministic and binary, but we find that that is actually something that we advocated around the world in as part of colonialism and like basically oppressed gender diverse uh, experiences almost out of existence as part of oppressing indigenous cultural practices. So, you know, when Rishi Sunet's kind of saying it's just common sense, it's not a good common sense to have, I think. Now, I did want to, before we get into questions, because I'm sure you have some cool questions, I wanted to say that, you know, children, young people, particularly when it comes to Rishi Sunak, you know, when he's making those statements, he's creating a context where it's hard for kids to be themselves, right? Because they're not sure they're going to be welcomed in a society that says there's just man and woman and what you are can be determined accurately at birth. In that society, children and young people might not feel like they will be accepted. But what we find from Grishau Shade and colleagues is that even in the most dire of circumstances, children and young people, in fact, maybe all gender diverse folk, find people who are safe 
and will test out with them acceptance in a process that Grisha Rashid and colleagues called leaving breadcrumbs. Sorry, I've eaten like five cookies. <clears throat> Grisha Rashid called it leaving breadcrumbs. Now, this is beautiful. And this is what we as a community of folk out there need to do is to make sure that when we see people leave breadcrumbs, that our receipt of them is welcoming and warm. Because that's how, even in these difficult times with Rishi Sunak making the statement that he's making, this is how we make sure that all people can find a place to belong. I want to give you these quote, a couple of quotes here. S stunning. I'm going to actually give you the quote from Richard Shade themselves. There's two. Breadcrumbs involve hints and testing the water, but they are more than that, referring to both the individual pieces of communication strategically placed and the process of dropping, receiving, and making sense of the meaning of their pattern, who we imagine we are allowed to be in the context of family. We call upon this data from our muscles and bones, the folds between tender affirmations, baffling apathy, and devastating rejection we have held, a somatic elicitation. We are not recalling this data from rote academic exercises or theory. Conceptually, the themes of the data point to breadcrumbs as our cognitive, emotional, and relational habits within our social ways of being, tied together by memory and time, allowing us to quickly and plainly recall patterns and behaviors in ourselves and others. Stunning to me. The examples of parent affirmation show, though, that there is hope. So this is when people respond positively to these breadcrumbs. There is hope and love. Between the lines and under the surface, there exists the unexpected human who sees our humanity, our inherent unconditional preciousness and lovability. A mother pushing back on her own parents. A piece of clothing that slipped in your uncle's shopping cart when he gives you a wink, allowing that toy to be played with. They are far in between and few, and we are also affirmed. Not in the grand ways that counter or balance the adultism, disgust and refusal we so often receive for our breadcrumbs, but rather in smaller, more infrequent ways that provide a wonderful exception. We, as a community of folk, gender diverse folk, allies, people in the world, we can find the breadcrumbs that our gender diverse kin leave for us. And we can let them know in those little wonderful ways that they have a place to belong. And in so doing, we as a community can make a world where everyone, everyone can find a place to belong.